Last week we started the parables, and I'm going to start over again tonight. And the reason I'm going to do that is I have always sort of heard that the seven kingdom parables in Matthew correlate with the letters to the seven churches in Revelation. So I went out and I actually studied it, and they do. The, the parables actually make a whole lot more sense as prophecy, which is what they are. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to start over again, and I'm going to reteach them as prophecy as opposed to simple aphorisms, okay? Now, again, to recap where we were last time, the purpose of parables is to hide and confuse. In other words, it is parables are used when you want to speak the truth to someone and you want to speak it in such a way that the hearer won't understand unless the hearer is uh, particularly tuned in. And the phrase that Yeshua uses in the parables, and he uses the same phrase in the uh, letters to the seven churches, is whoever has an ear, let him hear. And so the idea is that most people listening to them will not understand them, but to the ones that they are intended for, they will be understandable. And it was interesting because as I was studying this with the idea that the parables were going to be prophecy, it, it, was, it was kind of fascinating because I read commentaries of people who don't regard them as prophecy, not that they deny their prophecy, but that's just not the approach that they're taking. And the interpretations are completely different. And in some cases, I think, radically wrong. So, for example, the parable of the leaven, I've heard it preached over and over and over again in Christian churches that the leaven is the word of God and that the leaven goes into the dough and the word of the God spreads out and permeates the whole dough until all of the dough is leavened and you can't get rid of the leaven because the word of God is that powerful. Well, that's completely wrong. Okay? And if you look at them as... It's both wrong from a um, biblical typology perspective. In other words, leaven is everywhere used in Scripture as sin, and it doesn't all of a sudden become good in the parables of Yeshua, but it's also wrong in a, in a prophetic sense, and I'll explain why that is when we get there. God, over and over and over again in the Scriptures, sends prophets to his people, and he sends them to speak in parables, and he specifically sends, for example, Isaiah to speak the truth to these people in such a way that they will not understand it. And the reason for that is they're going into exile. In other words, their sins have gotten to the point where, okay, it's going to be everybody out of the pool time. And what he's doing is he wants, when they are in exile, looking back, reading the scriptures to be able to tell from the scriptures why they're in exile. And the reason for that is that exile is therapeutic and restorative. It is not punitive. So every time Israel goes into exile, it is to correct some problem or flaw with their national character. If they don't know what that problem or flaw is, then they can't correct it. But having been thrown out of the pool and been up to their hips in, you know, hairy Assyrians or hairy Babylonians or hairy Romans or, you know, whatever big hairy guys threw them out, they then take the scriptures that were written to them before they went and they go back over it and those scriptures then tell them, okay, this is why you're here. But 
before they go, they don't pay any attention. So the prophet can speak these words in parables to them. They won't do anything toward delaying the exile because the people won't listen to them. They don't hear them. They don't understand them. And they just get mad at the prophet because the prophet is telling them stuff that they know is kind of starchy, but they're not sure why and they don't want to hear it. So they get mad at the prophet. You know, they throw him in the jail or whatever that kind of thing is. And once they get into exile, then they can look back and say, oh, that's what he meant. That's what he was saying. That's why we're here. The purpose of speaking in parables here, and by the way, in the Gospels, there are a couple of different sets of parables. We'll talk about them all. Not tonight, obviously, but as we go through these, we'll talk about them all. The ones we're talking about now are the ones in Matthew, which are the kingdom parables. And there are seven of those. Okay, And there are seven kingdom parables, which I'm going to assert correspond to the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. And when you look at them side by side, they make a lot of sense. We're also going to get the parables that Yeshua spoke on his way to Jerusalem, and those are in Luke. And those are things like the friend at midnight and, and the unjust judge and you know more uh, social parables and not quite so much kingdom parables, although the kingdom parables are repeated in the other Gospels. Okay, So they're not unique to Matthew. They're, they're in other places. But we'll study them here in Matthew because Matthew is the Gospel of the kingdom. That's the Gospel of the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the king. So the kingdom parables are, are in that gospel, and they're all in a wad here in Matthew 13. And so what we'll do is we'll look at them and compare them one at a time to the letters to the seven churches. And the, la- I, the other thing I said last time is there is also structure to these parables in Matthew. So if you, in, the, in the beginning it says, the same day Yeshua went out of the house. And then if you skip down to verse 36, it says, then then he left the crowds and went into the house. And then in uh, 52, it talks about the master of the house. So the the parables are are divided into basically public parables. In other words, the one that, that he says outside of the house are the ones that he delivers to the crowd. So those are given to everybody. The ones that he delivers inside the house are given to his disciples. The structure continues in the, in the, there are three parables starting with another parable, another, and another. And there's three of those. Then the last three are followed by again, again, again. So another, 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 again, again, again. So the, the whole thing is very tightly structured. So let's take a look at the parables. Um, oh, by the way, as I, again, have said before, the proximate cause of him speaking in parables is in Matthew chapter 12, you had the Pharisees attributing credit to his throwing out demons and miracles and so forth to operating in the power of Satan. And that's where you get the, the bit about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So that's the trigger event. That, that's the event that switches him over into code speak. He goes from plain talking before then into parables after that. And again, my assertion is, once a prophet goes into parables, you're on your way into exile. And of course, we know that 
Israel was exiled within, what, 35 years, 30, 35 years after his crucifixion. When he switches into code speak, he's, he's basically saying, okay, I came to you and I gave you a chance to hear it straight. You didn't want to hear it straight, so I'm going to continue to talk to you. I'm going to continue to give you what Ray calls constructive notice, but now I'm going to switch over into code speak. Okay, So that's what's going on. All right, so let's look at the first one. So I'm in uh, Matthew chapter 13. That same day Yeshua went out of the house and sat beside the sea. Out of the house, sea. Okay, so out of the house means these are public. Sea means what? Nations. Nations. Okay, and as I said last time, he is, as far as we know, this is not a Gentile crowd. In other words, they are in fact a crowd of Jews. But the fact that he is going beside the sea indicates that he is speaking something that has relationship to the nation. And, and when we cross it with the letters in Revelation, I think you'll see what's going on. So, and stood beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him. So he got into a boat and sat down. The whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, okay, and by the way, into a boat. You all are aware, aren't you, that the metaphor in the New Testament is boats? The metaphor in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, is shepherds. Shepherds are big time throughout the Tanakh. When you get to the New Testament, the metaphor shifts and it becomes boats and fishermen. And the idea is we're dealing with the nations and you've got to take a boat to get to the nations. In other words, again, metaphorically, if you understand what I'm saying. So the fact that he is by a sea sitting on a boat indicates that this has something to do beyond Israel as it is in the land at that time when he's speaking. Okay? So he's not really speaking to Israel at this point. He is speaking forward into the nations that are going to hear these parables. And in fact, he's speaking in a sense of the nations because what he's talking about is what's going to become the Gentile church. So anyway, verse 3. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. So this formula, he who has ears, let him hear, is again the same thing that is tagged on to the end of each of the letters in Revelation. He doesn't continue that through the parables, but as I say, he does use it in Revelation. Also, by the way, this is not originally original with me, obviously, and I, I'm taking the broad outline of it from a guy named P.L. Reed, R-E-A-D, and his website is heraldmag.org. And apparently it's a, a fairly old magazine. They have uh, issues going back to the 19, early 1900s. He's a Sunday Christian, so there's a bunch of stuff that I didn't quite agree with, but the outline, I think, is just bang on. Uh, he, he's, he's absolutely nailed it. Okay, so the whole thing with the kingdom parables, it, it starts with 
the seed. And what's the seed? The Word of God. Okay, we know that from later on because Yeshua is going to explain it. So this whole series of parables starts with the Word. Okay? And what I'm suggesting to you is as you look at the Word of God in light of the rest of the parables and in light of the letters to the seven churches, what you're going to see is the Word of God going down through these seven parables and the seven letters. And it starts off with the word in the soil. And of course, we know that the word is always good, always pure, always correct, never the problem. So if the word doesn't produce fruit, the problem is in the soil. And again, I'm, I'm going to rip through this. We, we've already been through the typical explanation of what all these mean. And I'm not going to repeat that because I'd like to go through all seven of them in a swoop if we can get that far tonight. Okay? I think it'll make more sense to you if we do it that way. So, anyway, it starts with the Word. And if you go to Revelation 2, and this is the first one is the church of Ephesus. Now, if my assertion is correct that the kingdom parables are prophetic, and we, when we went through the letters to the seven churches, one of the things that I asserted there, and I believe, is that the seven churches represent seven stages in the progression or digression of Christendom. So he's writing to seven churches, and each one, of course, was a literal, actual, physical church in Asia Minor. But if you look at the progress of the gospel across the world and across time, what you find is each of the seven letters corresponds to a historical epoch in the progress of the gospel. Okay? And what I'm going to suggest to you is it also corresponds then to a kingdom parable. Everybody with me? My, my assertion is? Cool. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, right. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patience, endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake. You have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at the first. Remember, remember then from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Okay, so the characteristic of the church of Ephesus and the early church, what's called the apostolic age, which is the age when the apostles were still walking the earth. In other words, this is before the death of the last apostle, whoever that was, where you still had people who walked with Yeshua. And so when some son of a gun with a three-day pass and a briefcase came through and said, this is what he said, you had somebody that was there saying, no, it's not. And I was a witness and I was there. So what the church at Ephesus is doing is contending for the purity of the word. They are contending for the purity of the doctrine as received from the apostles. Again, the, the, the thread back in the kingdom parable is 
that it starts with the word, and the problem is not the word, the problem is the soil on which it falls. So you've got these false apostles, right, who one assumes have heard the word correctly. So you assume that they've heard the word correctly, and they're going out and teaching something wrong. Remember, Paul is writing about this to the Galatians, right? Where Paul is writing the church in Galatia, and he's saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know these guys say they came from the home office, and I know they said this, but it's not right. This is what's true. So these false apostles have heard the word, but it has fallen on bad soil. And so they are not bearing good fruit. But again, the, the whole purpose of the church of Ephesus is the initial promulgation of the straight word of God, the pure word of God, under the hand of the apostles. So now the next one we get to, I want to get down to the parable of the weeds. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, when the weeds appeared also, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to them, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them in? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them, let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. All right, now this gets explained down below. He's, we're going to skip the mustard seed. We're going to skip the uh, woman in the three measures. And we're going to skip down to verse 36, where he explains this parable to him. We, we didn't get to this last time. So I'm now down in Matthew 13, 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. Okay, so now he's in the house. He's explaining this parable to his disciples only. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds and of the field. He answered, The one who sows, good, who sows the good seed is the son of man. Now remember what is seeds was the word of God up in the first parable, right? Okay. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. Notice we've changed our metaphor a little bit here, haven't we? Because in the first parable, the, the seeds were the word of God. Here we say that the seed is the sons of the kingdom. And the weeds are the sons of the evil one. So now we have changed from talking about the word of God to talking about people. So up in the beginning, we had the word of God sown in different kinds of soil. And the, the people there were represented by soil. Now we've dropped down a level, and the seeds now represent people. And what does the field represent? The field is the world. So we've, we've shifted our metaphors here, but it's okay because he's explaining it to us. Okay, so this is not a shift that we have to make. It's a shift that he makes and explains to us. So it's okay. Yeah. Yeah, the comment was that, uh, you know, the soil doesn't decide what kind of crop it comes up with. The seed is what, decide what kind of, decides what kind of crop you get. So if the word of God is being sown in 
the human heart and the word of God is allowed to produce a crop, you wind up with a son of the kingdom. However, Satan is sowing seeds also. And if the seeds that Satan is sowing are nurtured and allowed to crowd out the seed of the word of God and are allowed to produce a crop, then what you have is a son of the evil one. Okay? The, the human clay, the soil, doesn't decide what kind of a crop it produces. The seed is what decides that. You have a choice as to which seed you will nurture, which seeds, you know, whether you'll pull weeds, all that kind of stuff. You have a choice in this. But the seed that you choose to bring to fruition is the thing that determines who and what you are. So anyway, I'm back in 37. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy he sowed them is evil. The harvest is the close of the age, the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of, the, out of his kingdom all causes of sin, all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So again, this formula of he who has ears. Now that corresponds to the church at Smyrna. The angel of the church at Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. But do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Okay, so what you have in Smyrna is basically wolves among the flock. And what you've got are that and, and, and pagan persecution of the church. So what you have is, within the church, you have people who are claiming to be believers, but are not. Again, remember the idea is, you have the tares and the wheat growing up side by side, and it isn't until they produce a crop that you know who they are. So in every church, in every situation, you've got people that come into that church who look, act, dress, and talk like believers, but they're not. So you have then a mixture of children of the kingdom and children of the evil one within the same field and within the same plot. And what winds up happening is persecution. And I don't know how many of you have ever been in a liberal church, but I started off life in the Episcopal Church. I was there when when Mr. Clinton had his problem with Miss Lewinsky. And we had two preachers, two priests, one of whom was an old Navy guy, retired Navy. The other guy was the one who's still there. Interesting. And the old Navy guy was preaching that day, and he stood up and said, this is an abomination. We need to go out there and clean house. We need to get this guy out of here. We cannot tolerate this. Half a dozen people got up and said, I don't believe you're saying that from the pulpit, and walked out. A month later, he was gone. 
what I'm saying is, you have in this church a mixture of people who say they are of the kingdom and are not. And what they will do is they will rise up and persecute those who are of the kingdom and who contend for the correct word of God. And in addition to that, of course, you have the pagans. Because one of the things that happened in the early church is the, you know, the gospel spread and you had a whole bunch of pagans coming into the early church. And the problem was they didn't leave their paganism at the door. They brought it right in with them. And what you had then is the mingling of pagan ideas, pagan philosophy, pagan thoughts with the gospel, and it all got mingled up, and the tares were right in there contending for their understanding of a non-judgmental gospel or you know whatever the thing was at that time, and you wind up with you know splits and schisms and persecution and all that kind of stuff. Onward. All right, now, so back up now, and let's go to the uh, parable of the mustard seed. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plant and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And again, I have heard this mistaught a lot. Oh, this teeny tiny seed, which is the gospel, and, and by the way, it is the gospel. That, that part is correct. Which is the gospel, gets planted and it grows up and it provides this wonderful place of shade for the little birds and, you know, it becomes a Sunday school lesson and, oh, how wonderful the gospel is because it shelters all the little birds and bunnies. Notice we're still talking about seeds. Okay? You have the parable of the sower. Then you had the wheat and the tares. Now you have the parable of the mustard seed. So we're talking about seeds in all three cases. And seeds switched from the Word of God to people, or as Galen rightly put out, bad seeds coming to fruition inside of people, which turns them evil. And I like that also, although that's not what Yeshua said, so I'll go with what he said. Here we still have a seed. The kingdom of heaven was like a grain of mustard seed, and a man took and sowed in his field. Okay, I, I'm with the original seed. I'm going to say we're still talking about the word of God, still talking about the gospel. But what happens now is a mustard plant is not a tree, not supposed to be a tree. Okay, a mustard plant is an herb. You, know, you go down to King Supers and you can buy mustard leaves, you know, big floppy leaves. It's, it's an herb. It's not a tree. So the idea that you have a tree indicates that there is something perverse has happened in the growth of this seed. Something wrong has happened. And of course, birds, we haven't had that meaning changed. And if you go back up to the first parable, which is the parable of the sower, birds are agents of the evil one who steal away the word of God, right? So birds are evil. So what's happened is this seed, which is the gospel, has been perverted and has grown all out of proportion to what it's supposed to be and has become this great Baroque artifice which houses birds, which is to say it provides places for the evil one to nest. So let's go now to the church at Pergamum and we'll see how this works. And so I'm in Revelation 2.12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, The words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. 
with which I will suggest he is going to prune a mustard bush. I know where youth dwell, where Satan's throne is. Oh, we have birds in our mustard bush, right? Satan's throne. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you do not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells, but I have a few things against you, that you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balaak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So what you have in this church is birds, agents of the evil one, who are promoting sexual immorality. They are promoting eating food sacrificed to idols. They hold the teaching of Balaam, which again is Israel can only be destroyed by herself. And the way to get her to destroy herself is to lead her into sexual immorality. Okay, so we're talking sexual immorality and so forth. Verse 15. So also you have some that hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And I'm not going to go into that. I don't have time tonight. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And again, what I'm going to suggest to you is that the sword of his mouth is going to go in there and prune the whop out of that mustard bush. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Okay, Pergamum, by the way, is what's called mixed marriage is what the word means in Greek. The gamum part is where we get gamete, which is the female reproductive system. So Pergamum is mixed marriage, and what you have then is the marriage between church and state. Constantine. Okay, historically Constantine. And so what happens then is that the church becomes the throne of Satan and grows all out of proportion and you wind up having all sorts of strange people nested in your mustard bush. The big bureaucratic church, you know, where you've got a program director for this and a program director for that and, you know, six different assistant priests and on and on and on, okay? In other words, the, the, the church has become a major source of employment, has become a major power in the empire, and it has become a place that attracts people who like power. Back into Matthew, verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. And again, I said at the beginning, I've heard this taught that this leaven represents the gospel, and the gospel gets in there, and once it's spread throughout the wheat, it's impossible to eradicate. That's bourgeois nonsense. Okay? It's not true. Leaven always represents sin because it puffs up. But interestingly, here you have a woman and three measures of flour. Okay? And that's going to be key. So let's go over to Thyatira. And I'm in now Revelation 2.18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your work your love and faith and service and patient endurance, that your latter works exceed the first. But this I have against you, that you tolerate that woman, ding, 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 that woman Jezebel, 
who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. All right, so what we have here is woman in the kingdom parable, woman in the letter, and what's the three measures of flour? Sin's obvious, leaven is obvious, sin, practicing sexual immorality, food sacrificed to idols, all that kind of stuff. That's obvious. Three measures of flour. Three measures of flour shows up in the Bible when God and two angels visit Abraham just before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says to Sarah, quick, gather three measures of meal and make cakes. Throughout the Arab world, it is my understanding that it is known that three measures of meals represents hospitality. So when you have a guest come to your house, sort of the minimum standard of hospitality is you get three measures of meal and make fresh cakes. Okay, So what we're talking about here is hospitality and fellowship and, oh, by the way, this gal is seducing my servants, uh, practicing sexual immorality, eating food offered to idols. All of those things, I will suggest, are in the same spirit as the fellowship. So what you have is the woman making the fellowship offering, but this fellowship offering is corrupt. Okay? Again, have I said that so it makes sense? The church at Thyatira historically corresponds to the state church. And the most common example is the Church of Rome, the Catholic Church, okay? where the church becomes intertwined with the empire and becomes a power player, and the church at the time of when the Roman church was in its ascendancy, you know, the church made and broke empires, made and broke kingdoms. You'd have kings that would go off and run astray and, and you'd have the Pope and a bishop and they'd had up some soldiers from another and they, they were actually taking place, you know, part in battles. So they were very much power players, uh, if you will. Verse 44. I mean, right back in Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Okay? Field. Again. What are fields in this parables? The world. Okay? In the kingdom parables, Yeshua has told us the field is the world. And he hasn't done anything here to change it. Okay? And now we find that the world has got a treasure that is hidden. And because the treasure is hidden, the one who finds it sells all that he has and buys that field. So let's go to Sardis. And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, The words of him who has seven spirits of God and seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So now, think about this a minute. The church has proceeded from Ephesus, the apostolic age, when it's alive and fresh and the apostles are walking the earth and everything is clear and crisp and undiluted, and it moves from there to wolves among the sheep, it moves to false teaching, it moves to merging with empire, and then it dies. Okay? You see, you see the progression there? All right. So, Church of Sardis, I know your works, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. 
Wake up and strengthen what remains that is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, hidden in this dead church, there are still some who are alive. The whole church is dead, and he says, yet, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white. Notice that these people are not able to turn the church around. They are not able to bring the church to life. The church is dead. But you've got a few people there that are not. And I'm suggesting to you that is the field with the hidden treasure. Are these people in the, in the church that are not dead, even though the church itself looks to be dead in a hammer? Parable of the Pearl, back in Matthew 13. Again, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who in finding one pearl, one pearl, singular, one, pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. What do you suppose the pearl is? The word of God. Bingo. It's the word of God. The next stage after the dead church is the Reformation. That's when... The printing presses started rolling. That's when the Bible was translated into all the vernaculars and taken out of the hands of the church. That Remember, there were the wars of the Reformation. And one of the big contentions of the wars of the Reformation is who gets to have control of the Bible. And you had all these people were translating the Bible and sending it out into the world in all sorts of different languages, and a lot of them got killed for it. Tyndall, Wycliffe, Luther. Okay? The pearl there, one pearl, a single pearl, the one thing is the Word of God. And the Reformation brings the Word of God back up to the surface. So now let's look at Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, the Word of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. And we went through keys when we did parables. I will suggest that one way you can look at keys is it's the word that opens up the kingdom of heaven. Okay? And that's what we're talking about in the parable of the pearl, is the opening up of the kingdom, the restoration of the word. I know your works. Notice they don't have any works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, one that no one is able to shut. In other words, after all the centuries of strife and hijacking the church and persecution and everything else, No one has been able to completely destroy the Word. The Word is still there. Okay, It's been suppressed, it's been hidden, it's been sequestered, it's been corrupted. But once the printing presses started to roll, and you went back to the original manuscripts, the Word word shines, it rises up, it is there. And it's a door that's open that no one can shut because Satan tried to shut it. Okay, That's what that whole sequence of events was leading up to Sardis, the dead church is Satan's attempt to shut the door. So, I'm in Revelation 3, verse 8. 
I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not decried my name. Notice it's the word of God. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Okay? So again, this is all about keeping the word. And what I'm suggesting to you, we're talking about the Church of the Reformation, that actually, the Reformation churches, other than translating the Bible, which is a big deal, don't get me wrong, I'm not, I'm not minimizing the big deal and the courage of the people who did it. Other than that, they don't have a lot of works. You look at Reformation churches and they, quite frankly, tend to be a little cold. But again, they have kept the word and they have contended for the purity of the word and they translated it and published it and spread it. And so the pearl is the word of God. Finally, 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that is thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and set it and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then we go to the church at Laodicea. The angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, I know your works, you are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich and I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love are approved in discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what I'm saying to you is, church at Laodicea is the church at the end at the time of the seventh trumpet. What will happen then is God will send his angels and will go through that church and those who are neither hot nor cold, those who do not have the word of God or the testimony of Yeshua will be thrown away. Sheep and the goats, good fish, bad fish, you know, however you want to describe it, that's what happens at the end of the age. Notice who does the separation between the good and the bad, the wheat and the tares. It's the angels. It is not the members of the church. So your job is not to be a sheep and goat separator. Your job is not to be a wheat from tear separator. Your job is to hew to the word of God and grow up and produce fruit. God will send his angels and he will do the separation. He will do the division. He will do the sorting. Okay. So, at the beginning of this, I said that the seven kingdom parables are prophetic. And, of course, I've correlated them with Revelation. But now I want to come back to something Yeshua says. I'm back in Matthew chapter 13, and I'm in verse 11. 
Actually, pick it up in verse 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. The purpose of parables, the purpose of prophecy, is so that the people who have an ear can take action. In other words, if you are one who has an ear, he is giving you these to be understood and to be the basis for action. If you are one who does not have an ear, then the parables are only useful to you in retrospect when you're sitting on your butt out in Babylon wondering what happened. And then you go back over them and read them. Oh, okay, now I get it. Okay, So they serve two purposes, but for the ones who have an ear, they are supposed to be the basis for action. They're supposed to tell you what's going on. And so if you look at the seven kingdom parables then, as Yeshua's briefing to his disciples on this is what's going to happen to this gospel and this movement that I am sending out through you. This is what happens to it as it goes out through the ages. And they're intended to understand. And, and at the end of it, when he says to them, do you understand what I said? They say, yeah, boss, we got it. So they understood. And then what I'm saying to you is, he then further amplifies that via John after his resurrection when he's speaking about the seven churches. And the seven churches are basically the seven kingdom parables amplified and expanded. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.